Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 6 and see if we can cover the feeding of the 5,000 from the Apostle John's inspired perspective. The feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle in Jesus Christ's life that is in all four Gospels. Makes it unique. Jesus will appeal to this miracle later in the lives of the Apostles. Do you not remember the feeding of the 5,000? And the 4,000? And the seven baskets that were taken up after the 4,000? Do you Have you forgotten that? Because they should have remembered it. That's remembering things in the Word of God that were given for our comfort and hope. And we have our own experience that over time teaches us similar lessons. We don't want to forget the goodness and power of God in our lives. Let's look at the first little section. I read to you the first four verses. John 6. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great multitude followed him, because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. After these things separates John 6 from the things that we learned in John chapter 5. The same words will open John chapter 7, telling us that John chapter 6 is a standalone event and doctrine around that event in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee. You know, the Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles long and about 8 miles wide for you to have a little bit of perspective on that lake. It's roughly 70 miles north of Jerusalem with Capernaum on the north end of it. So if you take 70 and add 13, you get about 85 miles the way the crow flies to get from Jerusalem to Capernaum where the Lord spent some of his time and some of the apostles actually lived. Here, we are told that the Sea of Galilee was also called the Sea of Tiberias. It's only called that in the Gospel of John after Tiberius Caesar because John the Baptist began preaching in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. And so there's a city on the shore of this lake called Tiberius, and the lake itself was also called the Lake of or Sea of Tiberius. And we get that from the first verse. Now a great multitude is following the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's because they saw his miracles. Now we've learned some things so far in the Gospel of John that Though they see the miracles and though they know the miracles are supernatural demonstrations of power from God, they are not so moved as to love the Lord Jesus Christ and submit to Him and want to follow Him in obedience to His gospel. They're just impressed and they want to bring their sick relatives and get them healed and they like to be fed as we're about to learn, but they do not want to follow the man and his doctrine. You know, there are certain things that the Lord blesses us with in our lives, but if we follow Jesus because of those things, then we're not following him for the real thing, and that is that he is the bread of life, the giver of eternal life, the savior of the elect, and the coming king that's going to rule the universe, and who sits right now at the right hand of God the Father. We want to love him for that reason and not for any side benefit that we get from him. You know, there's a verse that some of us have loved, and that's Psalm 37 and verse 4, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. 
we have spoken to each other for many years, for those of you that have been here for many years, that the first half of the verse is what's important. Delight thyself also in the Lord. If he gives us the desires of our heart or not, so be it. We don't need them as long as we have him and we're delighting in him. And so it is here. We don't just want to appreciate the miracles or the goodies that come along. And there are goodies for following the Lord Jesus Christ sometimes. Sometimes he takes away those goodies. Job had them. But see, Job, while he was in his right mind, worshipped God when he had them and worshipped God when they were taken away. The Lord gave. The Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not charge God foolishly. And we want to be like that. And so there's a great multitude following him, and we're told why, that they saw his miracles. You know, reading about a great multitude following Jesus could be, should be, great news, but it is not because many of them, the majority of them, will soon leave him because of his person and his doctrine was not what they were looking for. They were looking for a deliverer from Rome that would provide all their needs. And when they could see sick people being healed, and remember, when you've had a sick person in your home, there weren't hospitals the way we have them today. You had a sick person in your home, and you knew how sick they were and how physically infirmed and limited they were, and that there was no progress made by every method that you had used to see Jesus bring them back 100% of all the way instantly with perfect health, that is a very moving event. And it's very nice to be able to take care of relatives that way that you've had in your home, but that is not the reason to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. What if he gives us boils from the crown of our heads to the sole of our feet like he did Job? Are we still going to love him and worship him? We should. Jesus had the miracles to draw huge crowds, but he dealt with them very differently depending on their spirits about those miracles. As with this crowd, he's going to push them to reject the carnal things for spiritual things, and they're not going to like that doctrine. They prefer the carnal things. Jesus deals with crowds very, very differently from how most men deal with crowds. When Jesus has a crowd following him, and if you read this last night, you know that he was relentless in provoking them and irritating them with his hard metaphorical doctrine about eating his flesh and drinking his blood because he knew they didn't want him, they did not want the truth, They wanted their bellies filled, and he was not going to cater to them. He was not seeker-sensitive. He was not sensitive to such seekers. He was offensive to such seekers because he wants us seeking him for the right reason. And the right reason is repeated throughout John 6 that hopefully we have learned and we want to practice in our lives. Another multitude was following Jesus in Luke chapter 14. And he turned to that multitude and he said, No man can be my disciple unless he first of all hates his wife. Then you've got to hate your parents. Then you've got to hate your brothers. You've got to hate your sisters. You've got to hate your children. You've got to hate your houses, your lands, and your own life also, or you cannot be my disciple. Now you need to count up the cost whether you want to be my disciple or not. When a king with 10,000 faces a king with 20,000, he has to sit down and count up the cost. Am I going to be able to win this war? 
When a man starts to build a tower, he's got to make a budget for that tower that, that finishes it, the tower and completes its construction. Or, lest happily, he be left with an unfinished tower saying that that man was not a good planner and didn't properly measure the cost. And following Jesus Christ, we are to do the very same thing. There is a cost associated with it. And the lesson right now at the moment is Jesus would turn to a multitude and lay this hard message on them. He wouldn't say, it's so good to see you today. Let's rock this joint. He would say to them, it's hard being a disciple of mine, and you've got to hate all your earthly relatives, the dearest people that you have on earth. You've got to hate them in order to be a true disciple of mine. You need to count up the cost right now. Do you really want to endure the costly lifestyle of a disciple of mine? I'm just pointing out that what we find right here is consistent with the rest of the Bible in how Jesus would teach discipleship that would weed out the crowd. We're going to teach discipleship the same way. And it weeds out the crowd. And it will continue to do so. There are very large churches today with rapid growth that should shrink if they would stress the same doctrine and practice that Jesus Christ stressed during his ministry that can be found on these pages. Rather than reading the purpose-driven church or some other growth church, mega church guru material, they ought to be reading the Bible and preach the word. Amen. Just preach the word and lay it out there. And those that are truly born again and love Jesus Christ will embrace the word of God because that's sufficient for their souls and their minds. But these are here because they saw his miracles and that he had healed others. Healing is a unique miracle in that those close to the beneficiary know the previous state of the person that was sick and the state after the miracle is performed. They can see the, the difference very clearly. It's easy to play games with speaking in tongues and healing of the sort like Benny Hinn, who doesn't really heal anyone. It's a psychosis that he puts on the people. It's been proven many, many times over and over again. The gift of healing went away in uh, 70 AD, and there haven't been real healers around since then. If Benny Hinn really had the gift of healing, he ought to go to the cancer floor of the Greenville Hospital System and empty all the beds. But he can't do that, and he won't change their bedpans. So he doesn't go to the hospital at all. It's much easier to do that. It's much harder to drink poison or handle snakes, as the apostles did. Moses was the first healer in the Bible. He's the first one to take up serpents, and they would become a rod, and he would, and the rod would become a serpent, and so forth. He's able to put his hand in his bosom and pull it out, and it'd be leprous. He'd put it back in and heal it. But healing went away in 70 AD, and we know that because the Bible tells us those miracles were going to go away, and the apostle Paul could not heal at the end of his ministry. He, what did he tell Timothy? Timothy, you're going to get... You're going to get a FedEx package from me with one of my special hankies. And if you will lay that on your stomach tonight when you go to bed, your many infirmities of your digestive system will go away. Paul did not write that. Paul wrote Timothy and said to use a, 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 a home remedy. Drink a little wine for thy stomach's sake. In 1 Timothy 5.21. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul left Trophimus sick at Miletum. Why didn't he heal him? Because Paul's ability to heal was gone. 
Just like it's been gone from the church for 2,000 years, and there are only fakes that have come along since to pretend. If once in a while, the fakes are able to actually heal somebody, if, and it's a huge if, it's by the power of the devil allowed by God, it is not by the spirit of the living God, because their miracles are nothing like the healing miracles described to us in the Bible pages. Enough about healing. A large crowd, about 5,000 men, are going to result from this crowd that are following Jesus because of his miracles. We call this crowd 5,000, though the other Gospels are going to say that there were women and children to be added to it as well. So we could say 10,000, we could say 15,000, if there were a lot of women and children present as well. Any natural man, any natural man is interested in miracles. Any natural man is interested in healing power. Any natural man likes to see a a lunch multiplied so much that a little lad's lunch of five barley cakes and two small fishes can feed 5,000 men all they want to eat and 12 baskets full of remnants are picked up afterwards of the leftovers. Any natural Jew would want a Jewish Messiah to have such power and be their natural leader. But they didn't want a savior because they weren't spiritually inclined because they were spiritually dead. And that makes all the difference in the world about the Lord Jesus Christ. They thought that a man with such supernatural power could throw off the Roman Empire, heal all their aches and pains, and provide a daily food buffet like the rescue mission for them. And that's what they wanted from the Lord Jesus. They were not sincere And you know that from reading the whole chapter of John 6 last evening in preparation. These men did not love Jesus Christ himself, care about their eternal souls, or love his doctrine. These men followed him only with a carnal profession as they had no heart for spiritual truth. American Christians, I say that with quotation marks around the word Christians, foolishly follow movie stars, performing artists, and sob after watching fake blood in Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, so they get excited about their sweet, sweet idea of Jesus. But it's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible is the one we end up with in John 6 that was unmerciful to this crowd, and rightfully so, because they were only belly worshipers, and he has no use for belly worshipers. Their glory is in their shame, and they are to be destroyed. A belly worshiper is someone, let's remember, Philippians 3, 18 and 19 tells us and defines for us what a belly worshiper is. They mind earthly things. They mind earthly things. They care about their jobs. They care about their families. They love the things that Jesus said, you've got to hate in order to be my disciple. Now, when Jesus said to hate your wife, He meant to hate her relative to your love of Christ. Because elsewhere, Jesus taught that husbands are to love their wives. And so we should understand that and rightly divide the word of truth. But Lord, help us to understand the difference between the Jesus of John chapter 6 and the Jesus of so many. Many who croon the name of Jesus and wear WWJD bracelets go to hell. Wearing a WWJD bracelet is contrary to the doctrine of Jesus. Jesus condemned phylacteries. Phylacteries were boxes of scripture strapped to foreheads or worn on arm, the right arm. We don't go around parading our Christianity that way before men. We show our fear of God and our love of Christ 
by the character and conduct of our lives, not the bumper stickers that we have on our cars. Lord, help us to have our priorities right. This event was about one year prior to his crucifixion by virtue of it being approaching his last Passover supper. Verse 3, Jesus went up into a mountain and there he sat with his disciples. He tried to get away from this crowd, but they followed him anyway. He went up into a mountain, a, a distance away from Bethsaida and Capernaum, to which he and the disciples will return. But I do not want us distracted with all the logistical movements of Jesus and his apostles at this time. I want us to be interested in the miracle and their response to it. He sat there in a mountain place with his apostles. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. This is the third of four Passovers that are recorded in the Gospel of John. If the ministry of Jesus Christ was three and a half years long, we believe that because of Daniel chapter 9 telling us that in the 70th week of years, Jesus would be cut off in the midst of that week. And it took 69 weeks to bring us to his baptism. Do you all know why we believe the ministry of Jesus was three and a half years? Because it was one half of that final week of seven years. So it's three and a half years. We know he died at Passover because he celebrated the Passover supper and instituted the Lord's Supper at the same time then died as its fulfillment. If we back up three and a half years, we'll re we're required to see four Passovers. And John's the only one that tries to help us see those different feasts to, to see the three and a half years of his ministry. He started at the age of 30, Luke chapter 3, and he died at 33 and a half years of age. The Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. I'm not even going to turn you to the places we've already covered that show us that the previous two Passovers that he attended. Verse 5 Let me read it down through verse 14. John 6, 5 through 14. Jesus is sitting in a mountain with his disciples. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There is a lad here, which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise of the fishes, as much as they would. When they were filled, he said unto his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Then those men, the five thousand, then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth 
that prophet that should come into the world. And we don't have time right now to deal with what happens, but verse 15 immediately changes by Jesus perceiving that they were going to force him to become their king right there on the spot, departing alone and getting away from the 5,000 and his own apostles and going into a mountain himself alone. And the apostles headed back toward Capernaum. There's other events that take place in here, but heading back toward Capernaum by boat, Jesus meets them by walking on the water in the midst of a storm, and then they're immediately at shore, and they're in Capernaum. Then the crowd that was waiting for him at the port place where they were, where he had fed them the five fed the 5,000, they realize Jesus isn't here. They're getting word that he's in Capernaum, so they take shipping, they run, they get there however way they can, and they find him in Capernaum, and then he sets them straight that he didn't really have much interest in them because they were seeking him for the wrong reasons. They were seeking him for a free meal. What goodies are you seeking Jesus Christ for? Let's flush all the goodies and seek him for walking with Him and fellowshipping with Him every day, for worshiping Him as the Lord of glory, for knowing He's our only Savior and delighting in Him for that fact every day, and for knowing that He is going to receive us into heaven and be our mediator at God's right hand. The real events, the real reasons to follow Jesus Christ, not the goodies. If we put the spiritual things first and he adds goodies with them, we can thank him and we will for those goodies, but that is not why we ought to follow him. Verse 5, Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company unto him. Do you think Jesus needed to lift up his head to know that a great crowd was following him? Guess again. He already knew, but he lifted up his eyes. He was a man and he saw the multitude coming. We know that this great company was about 5,000 men plus women and children because Matthew adds that in his account. Remember, it's in all four Gospels. And Matthew adds some things that are not told us anywhere else. That's why we read all the Gospel accounts. That's why if you want to really understand a subject, you want more perspective than one, and God the Holy Spirit has accommodated that because that's the way men write And so different gospel writers looked at it from different angles and wrote down different details of it. I mean, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't tell us any of what we get in John 6 after they're fed. And there's a lot of material here. But Matthew added that the crowd was much larger than just the 5,000 men. Now Jesus asked Philip a rhetorical question in verse 5 for his learning that Jesus can do anything. Philip, how are we going to feed this great crowd? Where are we going to buy the bread that these may eat? Philip responded with the natural, ordinary disbelief of most men, even the apostles at times. When reading the Bible, I hope you'll be ready for any conviction that you can do anything with the help of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul wrote to you in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me, I hope that you believe that. Because you'll find situations in your life or you'll see promises in the Word of God and you can say, I don't know how that can happen. Oh, it can happen. And it can happen better than you think. Verse 6, And this Jesus said to prove Philip. That's to explain the pronouns to you. And this he said to prove him. Jesus is proving, testing Philip's faith. 
Philip? Yes, you too. And this he said to prove him. For he himself knew what he would do. Jesus already knew that the 5,000 were there and it's a perfect opportunity for him to multiply a small lad's lunch and feed 5,000 They have 12 baskets full left over. And women and children fed as well. Jesus knew what he was going to do. Jesus always knows what he's going to do with your life. He He knows every detail of the events that take place in your life. And he just wants us to humbly believe him that he can take care of us through the trial or the difficulty or the predicament that we might face from time to time. He knew what he himself would do. What was he himself going to do? He was going to bless this little lad's lunch and it was just going, he's just going to start handing it out and it's going to take care of 5,000 and fill 12 baskets. Jesus asked Philip about feeding the huge crowd to test Philip and test his faith. What had Philip seen a year or two earlier? They were short of another food item. Wine. Was Jesus able to provide the best stuff they'd ever had? Why have you saved the best till last? But Philip didn't remember that. And brethren, right now, the things written in the Bible are to build our faith for difficulties. Did you use that verse? For some reason, I know that. Romans 15, 4. The things that were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Because we look at what God's done for others in the past. You heard a man use Psalm 86 and verse 17 that God's going to help and comfort him. And we believe that. And so there's these two sources of experience. One is the experience of others that's recorded in the pages of Scripture. And one of them is in John 2. And we get get to John 6 and Philip's forgotten John 2. Do you ever forget John 2? Oh, yes, you do. And so do I. Lord, help us and save us from that. Philip forgot that when they wanted wine at the wedding feast in Cana, Jesus was able to provide hundreds of gallons of it. Do you remember? And it was excellent wine. Then, first of all, there's the Bible lessons. Did someone remind you that you're supposed to remember the works of God? Do you remember who it was? Don't test me. Sherry and I have been practicing on this. That is brother... Who said that? That's right. Chris did that. Fathers should teach their children to remember the works of God. Because if you'll remember John 2, John 6 doesn't give you a big problem. Then we have our own personal experience. And that's in Romans 5, which our brother Jim quoted to us. Romans chapter 5, to rejoice in tribulations because tribulations work patience, and patience brings about that E-word, experience, and experience gives us hope because we know God's delivered us in the past. He's going to deliver us in the future. He'll take care of it. We have, we have this double source of proof, of evidence, of confidence, of assurance for our faith that God will take care of us, the experience of others written in the pages of Scripture, and our own experience from previous troubles. Can you lay hold of those two things? Both of them. Double fist of blessing from God that He will take care. Though sometimes it looks like we're failing and falling and we're going to lose. Jacob was afraid of Esau. Jacob was a mama's boy. And Esau was a mighty hunter. 
Esau had sworn that he was going to kill Jacob for stealing his blessing. When Jacob returned to the land of Canaan, he found out that Esau was coming to meet him with 400 men. All Jacob had was 11 boys, 12 years of age and under. And he went and wrestled with the Lord. But this is, I've told you this so many times, but I want everyone to remember it, and our children need to learn these things. Right. While he was wrestling with the Lord for the Lord to protect him from Esau, things went from bad to worse. Right. How'd they go from bad to worse? God touched his thigh and put his hip joint and thigh out of joint. For those of you that have ever wrestled, it doesn't have to be officially or formally because you've all wrestled if you're boys. For those of you that have wrestled, you know that you need your hips and joints and the strongest muscles on your body are below your waist, not above your waist. It's your thighs and quadriceps and glutes. Let's just not go there anymore. But when the Lord puts that at a joint, you're in trouble as a wrestler. And so things went from bad to worse. But were the glory days in the end? He went out to meet Esau, and Esau fell on his neck and kissed him and said, Brother, I don't need all these gifts you've been giving me to bribe me. I don't, he didn't say it quite that way, but that's what the intent was. I don't need them. Then All of this is to say, let's trust the Lord. Right. When the Lord arranges a circumstance in your life, he himself already knows what he's going to do. Right. It is nothing to him. But we look at it with this limited perspective of what's in front of us. We get overwhelmed by it. Let's remember our two sources for our faith. The experience of others in the pages of Scripture. The experience in our past where the Lord has taken care of us. And let's not be negligent to remember either one of those. We know Jesus arranged the whole predicament to display His power to all those men. To most, it would be to condemn them because they didn't believe on him like they should have, and it was to confirm and bless his disciples. Philip answered, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. I want you to keep noticing a man without much faith. Philip realizes that he might be being tested, and so he, he he reduces the situation to the minimum. Let me do a little calculation on just getting a little. But when the Lord does something, does he do do it better than a little? Can he give you your glory days? They ate till they're filled, all they wanted, and there were 12 baskets full taken up. Philip did his math, 200 penny worth. A penny worth was a day's wages. Today it's 60 bucks, 200, $1,200. $1,200 buys you 600 loaves of bread. There's 16 ounces in a loaf. Each person in a crowd of 16,000 gets one slice of bread. It's still the same today. You say, do you really have fun doing stuff like that? Yes, I do. It's one of the... Yes. I didn't know what a loaf of bread cost, so I had to go online. I found out that Aldi's the cheapest, I think but it's typically about two bucks for a loaf of bread. That's, the, that's what I used. But you know, it was the same here. Here's Philip reasoning. If we just gave him one slice of, of our sliced loaf bread, he'd, he, they'd get one ounce so they could each have a little bit to tide them over. But what does the Lord give them? 
fillet of fish, all they wanted, as big as they wanted, as many as they wanted, and there were 12 baskets full. Never, never count the Lord short. Right. Well, you can say to yourself, well, there's this possibility, there's this possibility, and then I'm probably going to be stuck with this. Poor old me. I'm only going to get one slice of bread. Well, when we're reading this and we're studying this, let's learn what the Lord can teach us from it. He outdid Philip's calculations. You know, logistics is an incredible part of an army. And remember this little statement. I'm sorry for getting off on this rabbit trail. An army marches on on its stomach. Logistics is incredibly important to feed an army. If an army is not fed, they, can, they, they catabolize their muscles, they lose their strength, they lose their joy and energy, and they cannot fight. Napoleon learned that in Russia. Hitler learned that in Russia. Armies march on their stomachs. So we need a logistics officer, but not like Philip. <laughs> we need a little bit more than a slice of bread. The Lord Jesus Christ fed them fish sandwiches, all they could eat. Praise the Lord. Verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and Andrew was a great believer. Andrew brought Peter to Jesus, and we read about it in John chapter 1. But it's Andrew's turn to show his lack of faith. The disciples have sourced from the crowd a lad's lunch. So they've got this little lunch pail sent with, from mommy of five barley cakes and two small fishes. Andrew tells the Lord, there is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? So Andrew was like Philip in lacking faith. Because if the Lord was able to take wine and change it into, take water and change it into excellent wine, surely he could take a small lad's lunch and feed more than it was thought. And so we want to have the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we want to believe these lessons that are given to us in the Word of God. Andrew could have said, instead of, but what are they among so many? He could have said, what was water when we needed wine? It is enough. He could have held up that little lunch and said, it is enough. You'll face trials and troubles, and you must be Caleb or Joshua, not the ten. Jesus said, make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus said, let's just get to the next stage of this process, because he knew himself what he was about to do, and that was to feed them. And there was grass. What a providential kindness. There's not a sentence in the Word of God that I don't delight in, and I hope the Lord will show me whatever sentences I don't understand, and I hope I can share them with you. If there's a sentence in the Word of God, it has value for us. There was grass in the place. You don't need grass for preaching, but you need grass for sitting and enjoying a lunch. And the Lord arranged for all of that in that particular place. Verse 11, Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise of the fishes, as much as they would. Jesus took the loaves. Do not keep your loaves or other things. Don't keep your children. They're not yours. Let the Lord have them. The Lord said, casting all your care upon me, for I careth for, for he careth for you. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. You don't want the loaves in your hands. 
You can't multiply loaves like he can because all things are better with him. Cast your cares on him. Children, jobs, health, and other needs or troubles can be turned over to him. Tell him, it's in your hands now, Lord. Tell him. The little lunch was put in the Lord's hands. He lifted his eyes up to heaven, and when he broke that bread, it fed 5,000 men plus women and children and 12 baskets full of leftovers. You can live carefree in peace by flushing anxiety about your abilities and turn it over to the Lord, just like this here. And when he had given thanks, first note that Jesus gave thanks. He was not only thankful in heart to God, but he gave thanks. This is an important part of the process, part of eating that Jesus does not miss. John will mention it again in an unusual way of narrative description if you're familiar with this sixth chapter. Look at verse 23. It's in parentheses. John 6, 23. It's it's a narrative description of what's taking place there. Howbeit there came other boats from Tiberias nigh unto the place where they did eat bread. After that, the Lord had given thanks. Notice John in his narrative just wants to point out this is a bread eating where the Lord gave thanks. And when the Lord gave thanks, it was a special bread eating because it fed 5,000 people. It's just a little unusual way of the Lord, of how the Holy Spirit wants to identify the feeding of the 5,000. And it's called, they did eat bread. After that, the Lord had given thanks. Because when the Lord gives thanks, things happen. And when we give thanks, we are not one of the nine. We are one of the ones that give thanks. You should never fear to give thanks for God's abundance in feeding us daily. In public, we should never be timid about giving thanks to God for His abundance. He distributed to the disciples. Having given thanks, He then multiplied the five loaves greatly. Never forget that God can multiply your assets or efforts beyond your thoughts. Some men think they're not competent to be a good father. Some think they're in a position at their work that they aren't going to be able to hold up. Trust God to multiply your efforts. Turn it over to Him. He will multiply efforts. He wants you to sleep. He only wants a reasonable amount of effort out of you. The verses are these. The lesson is right here. Jesus can multiply assets and efforts. He says, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. There are builders, but their efforts are in vain if the Lord's not in the matter. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. There are watchmen, but their waking is not as important as the Lord in the matter. Next verse, Psalm 127. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Only do your reasonable best and trust the Lord for the rest because he is able to multiply assets and efforts and he proves it here with the feeding of the 5,000. And he teaches it throughout the word of God. Your efforts are never enough. Let's be honest about the matter. But the Lord can multiply them. He distributed to the disciples. Oh, thank you, Lord. And the disciples to them that were set down. How did Jesus distribute the disciples to them that were set down? 
I'm playing with you for a moment. There's an ellipsis here. He distributed to the disciples and the disciples to them that were set down. How did Jesus distribute the disciples to those that were set down? Or are the disciples distributing? But the verb's not in there, is it? It's an ellipsis. It expects you to understand it. And we do. You say, why would you even tell us about that? Because there are places in the Bible you better understand that there's an ellipsis and there is a word that is not there. There's a modifier. There's an adjective. There's a verb that's not stated that's to be understood, especially in the book of Proverbs. And likewise of the fishes, as much as they would. Jesus distributed over a ton of fish to the disciples. Over a ton. Do the math. Only 10,000 people, three ounces per. This is better than a free lunch because it's a free buffet. When you, hit, when you get a free lunch, there's a, limit of quant- there's a quantity limit on what you have, but it's a free buffet. When they were filled, they were filled. The crowd was filled. He said unto his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. The emphasis there is that there were leftovers after filling 5,000 men plus women and children. Therefore they gathered them together and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. When they gathered the leftovers and what had been left, it filled 12 baskets full. From that little lad's lunch, after it fed 5,000 above and beyond what they all wanted to satisfy themselves, and they were all filled. It's a tremendous miracle. It's in all four Gospels. Jesus will remind his apostles of it. It should have caused these people to have fallen on their faces and repented and glorified the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, they wanted to make him a perpetual food supply for them instead of worshiping him. When Peter, early in his life, had a miracle similar to this on the deck of a ship, Peter was out fishing, and Jesus said, Cast your nets one more time. Lord, we have fished all night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let the nets down again. Do you remember? He let the nets down again and couldn't draw it in, had to call his business partner on his cell phone and get him to come over. The fish were about to sink two ships. What did Peter do? Want to make him king so that he always had fish like that? He, he, fell in, he fell on the deck of his ship and said, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Right. What a difference! These men want to make him king, not because they see him as the Son of God and, and a ruler at the right hand of God, but because they want the bread. Jesus tells us that's the issue in verse 26 when he says all you care about in this miracle is not the power of God present and the person of God, the Son of God, that performed the miracle, but rather you got your bellies filled and you'd like to see them filled again so easily. As much as you wanted to eat, you know it was the best filet of fish ever served on this planet. Don't you all know that? When the Lord does something, he does it right. Just like the wine was the best that was at that wedding and was better than the the governor of that feast had served in the first batch, so this would have been excellent. Oh Lord, teach us the truth here and let us see in that 14th verse the danger. I want to remind you of Peter and his response because we're going to get Peter at the end of this chapter. When he saw the Lord's power in his life, it exposed his sinfulness And he repented. 
These men should have repented at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing they were in the presence of God, the Son. Then those men, the 5,000 that he fed to their fill with fine bread and fish, when they'd seen the miracle that Jesus did, this crowd of men's going to follow him. They have been following him for the miracle of healing. Now they're following him for the miracle of food production. This crowd of men is different than the Jews that wanted to kill Jesus. I mean, these look like seekers. They're following the Lord. These men saw the power of God and they believed Jesus fulfilled prophecy when they said in verse 14, this is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. That is one of the great prophecies of the Old Testament about Jesus Christ. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 18. When Israel stood around the base of Mount Sinai, and that great mountain in the Sinai Peninsula was altogether shaking and on fire, and it looked like a blast furnace going up from it, and the, Lord, the voice of the Lord was like a trumpet sound getting louder and louder. It was terrifying. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews 12 that even Moses quaked and feared. It was a terrible sight. There was a border put around the bottom of that mountain. And if any beast got past that border toward that mountain, they were to be thrust through with darts. It was capital punishment for approaching that presence of God on the mountain. They should have humbled themselves when they saw the miracle of God. These were not true believers. Israel around that mountain, they said, Moses, tell God to stop talking to us. It's too terrifying. Tell him to send someone else like you that can speak to us, man to man. God said, okay, it's a good idea. I'll do it. And that's in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19. I will raise up a man from among you like unto Moses, one of your brothers, and he shall speak my word and my will to you. And the man that does not heed his word will be destroyed from among the people. That's Jesus Christ. It's a great prophecy. It's one of the four great prophecies found in the, laws of, in the law of Moses. Genesis 3, Genesis 22, Genesis 49, Deuteronomy chapter 18, the four prophecies in the five books of Moses about the Lord Jesus Christ that are very plain and very powerful. And Jesus Christ came, a man like them, and he preached the will of God to them, and they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, and did he destroy the people? Yes, he did. He leveled the, the, the nation of Israel. And they said, this is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. They knew the Bible. They knew Moses foretold a prophet. They loved the truth. They loved the truth about Jesus. He was God's prophet. They correctly identified Jesus because it was not John the Baptist. John the Baptist had already told them in John chapter 1, I am not the prophet. Because they had already asked him, art thou that prophet? That prophet that Moses said would come like me. No, John wasn't him. Jesus was him. They correctly identified Jesus. You see all the positive things about these seekers? Devils have head knowledge. They had head knowledge. There's a prophecy outstanding that hasn't been fulfilled. Did you just see what he did with that meal we just had? Wasn't that the best food you ever had? Did you get all you wanted? Yeah. Did you see how much leftovers there were? They reasoned through it that way about their bellies. Brethren, we've got to finish right now. Why are you a member of this church? Why are you here today? 
Why are you baptized? Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ as the only Savior of your sins and deliverer from the wrath of God that's to come on this planet? Is he the Lord of your life in every part of your life? Do you show it in passionate zeal for him and sacrificial giving of yourself, your time, your money, your efforts, your, your emotions for the service of the church, for the service of the Lord? That's the measure of a real disciple. We continue. We don't flake out. We don't turn away. We don't turn back. We continue. It's a long-distance race to run for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to run it well. We want to forget the things which are behind. You heard that over the past two weeks. We want to press forward. We want to do it passionately. Are you a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? When we look at these miracles and when we think about them, we want to be like Peter. Lord, I am not worthy to be your servant. Lord, I'm not worthy to be your child. We should come clean with the Lord. Lord, examine me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Every one of you needs that. If you don't do it, you're just one of these seekers. You don't belong here. There's lots of churches that will have you because they don't care what you do and they're not worshiping Jesus anyway. Lord, help us. This whole chapter is going to be Jesus addressing these men who said this is of a truth, the prophet that should come into the world. They were right about the truth. They were right. But they were not right inside about how they received him and what they were going to do because of him and for him and to him. They just wanted to be fed And it's that 26th verse that tells us, it's one of the key verses of John chapter 6, ye seek me not because you saw the miracle and realized the kingdom of God is present on earth. You seek me because I filled your bellies and you want more of that. We do not want anything like that unless it is a secondary icing on the cake of loving Jesus Christ for being our Savior. He laid down his life for us. He came from heaven. He ascended back into heaven. He's at the right hand of God. He's wielding a rod of iron. He's dashing the nations in pieces. He's coming for us very soon. We want to love him and look forward to him. We want to talk about heaven. We don't want to talk about earth. We want to talk about being in his service, not about our employment. We want to keep first things first and latter things latter. Or we end up being just like them and Jesus turned away from them and turned them away from him by his hard doctrine. He did not commit himself to them. He knew what was in man. He knows what's in each one of you and he knows what's in me. Lord, have mercy on us. Purify us, Heavenly Father. Send thy Holy Spirit. Let the Word of God speak to us loudly and plainly. Correct the things that are wrong in our lives that we might follow thee perfectly. According to your word, we thank thee, O Lord, for Jesus Christ, thy son. And we look at this chapter and we rejoice in every aspect of it. The fact that he was hard on them, they deserved it because they didn't want the truth. They did not want the real truth. They wanted more sandwiches. But he gave us the real truth here. And we want to come to terms with him and eat his flesh and drink his blood by believing on him and embracing him and loving him and obeying him, that is 
to eat his flesh and drink his blood, to come to Christ humbly in repentance and beg him to take us, love us, save us, help us. And he will. All the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. But this crowd got turned away because they were there for the wrong motives. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.